Hat makers came from all walks of life, sons of carters, sons of innkeepers, agricultural labourers. This was a potential way of improving their life. It was a skilled job. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. 2023 marks 100 years of our museums and collections, and we're celebrating by examining 100 intriguing objects that help tell the story of Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area. We're looking stylish in this episode with an object which no well-dressed Georgian or Victorian gentleman would be without, but which was the product of a local industry which is often forgotten. Today's object is a felt hat made in Ray. The hat is a typical looking black felt top hat. It's 32 centimetres wide at the widest part of the brim and 19 centimetres tall. It's black all over with a thin black band just above the brim. The top hat shape, originally made in silk, emerged during the 1790s and became a staple within the upper classes. But felt hats of other designs had been worn by almost all classes for hundreds of years previously. Felt hats were made across the UK but many people may not be aware that there was a thriving hat-making industry in the village of Ray. We spoke to Christine Workman, a local historian who has researched the industry, and Emma Hoban, museum assistant at Lancaster City Museums, to find out a bit more about the people and places involved in making a hat like this. Christine started off by telling us what we know about our particular hat. This hat was made in the village of Ray, which is about 10 miles northeast of Lancaster, it's a small proto-industrial village of its day. There were many other industries going on there at the time, but the hat making was a key industry there. This is reputed to be the last hat made in Ray, so we think that it would be made in the 1870s. Hat making probably started in Ray from the 1730s, local, national and international. The industry lasted from about 1730 through to about 1820. However, felt hat making continued in a mechanised way after that. It was probably made in one of two workshops, which were the last two standing. At any point in time, there would have been between two and six workshops in the village it was a major centre of, of felt hat production. The last two standing belonged to John Lucas, who'd been there since the 1780s as a young apprentice. And the second hat workshop was of Robert Ripley. He was apprenticed sometime in the early 1800s and set up his own business. We know that the Lucas business finished in 1862, so it's more than likely that it was Robert Ripley's who is said to be the last hat maker in Ray. So let's find out a little bit more about the hat making industry in Ray and the buildings and people involved. The hats were made in workshops and these could be purpose-built buildings or they could just be an outbuilding that belonged to a house or a barn. So it could have had multi-purposes and that's why there are very few examples of these workshops left. They had to be well ventilated and then there had to be another room that just had no draught and they were agricultural buildings because 
felt hat making was sometimes a secondary occupation for agricultural workers who, when they weren't tending the sheep, needed another job. They were using fleeces and the fibres from the wool to help make the felt hats. That's quite right. Villagers in this area, like Cormer, farms in Over Wiresdale, were places where you would find hat workshops. But it was a jewel industry. It was, as you say, agriculture and hat making. Whereas in Ray, the hat makers there only did hat making. When the industry started to decline, then they would do other industries, other jobs as well to, to supplement it. But essentially, in its golden age, this 1740s through to about 1820, in Ray, there were hat workshops that were only just hat workshops and they were employed full time. Hat makers did a seven year apprenticeship with a master hatter and they would sign on somewhere between the age of 12 and 14. After they had finished their apprenticeship, they became what is known as journeymen. And then after a few years, they could become master hatters and take on their own apprentices. The apprentices came from all walks of life, often the sons of the hatters themselves. There could also be sons of carters, sons of innkeepers, agricultural labourers. This was an industry that was a potential way of improving their life. It was a skilled job. And what about the actual process of making a hat? Christine explained that there are three stages to the process and began by taking us through the first step, the bowing, which was a fascinating and skilful procedure. There is three processes in the production of felt hat making. There is the preparation of the raw material, which is called the bowing. Then there is the planking, which is where the felting process goes. And then there is the finishing, which is the third and final part. In the first part, in the bowing, you need a draftless area. You need an area with a workbench, you need a light source, so a window. So your workbench was often put in front of a window. Suspended from your roof, you would have a bow and that would be made of wood, about five feet long and would be strung with catgut. And the process here is the preparation of the material. In Ray, the hats were made from wool and rabbit's fur. These hats are often known as beaver hats. And that's because they were originally, in the early 1720s, 1730s, made from beaver fur, which would be imported, usually from Canada, through the Hudson Bay Company. And that would then either be mixed in with the sheep's wool or actually plated onto the surface of the finished hat. Unfortunately, the beaver was hunted to near extinction by about the 1740s, but the name beaver hat stayed with this style of hat. They would take the shorter fibres of the wool and that would have to be carded. That would often be done by the women. Now, the women are very much the silent workforce here. This is a male-dominated industry, the felt hat making, but it's the women who will do the preparation of the material and who often do the finishing of the hats if the hats were to be finished. They would be carded so that all the knots were out of the wool. The rabbit's fur has a substance called keratin in it, and that makes the fur stick up. So you want your furs to lie flat when you're going to felt them. So they did a process called carroting, and here they would apply a liquid of mercuric nitrate. 
and that was an orange colour, hence the name carroting. And that would be applied to the fur and allow it to lie flat. The material would be weighed out to the size and shape of the required hat and it would then be put in a pile on the bench. The idea at this point in the bowing process is to produce a triangular shape of material and it's going to be somewhere between 18 inches and 2 feet long. It will of course shrink in the felting process. What they do then is they take this 5 foot bow and they hold it over this material and they then strike the bow. As they strike it, the vibrations of the bow make the fibres float up into the air and as they float down, so they overlap each other. And it's the skill of the hat maker to make those fibre float up, float down, overlap to form this mat. They will then, first of all, put pressure on. You then put water over it, so the water will then get the fibres to mat together. Having got one of those pieces, he then makes a second. He then puts the two pieces together, but he'll put a piece of paper inside to stop the two sticking together. And he then joins them all the way around the edge. At that point, he has one conical hat, very long, very tall, and he's then ready for the second process. Now our hatter has a rough hat shape, the next step is the planking. The second process is called planking or kettling and that is done in an area that really needs to be ventilated. It's very hot, it's very thirsty work. The men are in one room, they have in the centre of the room a kettle or a drum and that drum is filled with hot water and around the edge of that drum are planks of wood, hence it's called the planking shop. Each one is a workstation. Into that water, they put sulfuric acid. That helps the felting process. If they haven't got sulfuric acid, they use their own urine. Once the hatter has got this pad, as we call it, he would start to dip it into the hot water. So it starts to shrink and it mats. He rolls it, he kneads it to the shape that he actually wants it to be. He will have a hat mould to put it on at the end. A good hat maker can make between six and eight hats a day. Once the hat has been moulded to the correct shape, it's put onto a wooden mould and left to dry. After that, it's the women who used to complete the hats in this area. They would trim any loose hairs, they would use hot irons, they would rub it with pumice to make it smooth, and they would trim the brim. This hat is uh, reputed to have been bought by a local tailor called John Selby, who lived in Hornby Village. Hats like these would have been bought by the local tradesmen, by the local gentry, and they would have been easily available at the local fairs, such as the Ray Fair, Hornby Fair, or you could have perhaps bought them in markets in Lancaster, or you could just have gone to the workshop and ordered your hat and bought it direct from the hat maker. These hatters were part of an industry which was affected by national and international events, creating surges in demand. Although felt hat making had been introduced to the UK from France in the 15th century, 
Christine and Emma explained that global exploration and colonialism caused the industry to grow rapidly. From about the 1740s, hat production really increased. From about 1600, Britain had been acquiring colonies in the West Indies. They had discovered that sugar grew very well. They therefore brought in enslaved Africans to work on the plantations. There was an act, wasn't there, in 1696, the Slave Code, which required masters of plantations to provide clothing, including hats, for their slaves. You're quite right, and that is one of the reasons why there was this increased demand for hats. From about the 1770s, there was an increased demand for military hats as well. And so you've got this sort of double demand for these hats. And it's because of that that hat making really takes off in this northwest area. But our hat is not one that would have been made for export to the plantations. Instead, it's a much more elaborate product that comes from a later time in the industry. To finish off, we discussed a particular business setup that maintained the hat industry in Ray and how the industry changed to produce hats like our top hat, just as the Ray industry was coming to an end. Ray is somewhat different though because from 1805 to 1822, Ray had a workshop there set up by Christie's of London. Christie's were finding that they really could not keep up with the demand for felt hats. They got commission agents to commission other hat makers to make hat bodies for them, essentially a hood of felt. And that would then be sent to London to be finished in London. It was thought that in London, the hat finishing was of a better quality than in the North. But it was cheaper to make hats in the North. The labour costs were much less. It was a very big workshop. It could employ up to 32 men. John Mason, who ran the workshop for Christie's from 1805 to 1822, was a Quaker. And he originally came from a hatting family in Quorma. In about 1802, he went down to London and Christie's were also Quakers. So they would have met at the Quaker meeting house or perhaps even John Mason worked for him. We don't know. But somewhere along the line, they did a deal. And he then made hats for Christie's for the next 20 years. The hatting industry, however, was in decline from about 1800. The port of Lancaster had silted up. Most of the exports had moved to Liverpool. There were wars going on. There were privateers. The export trade was suddenly a lot riskier. The hat makers slowly but surely either gave up the business or moved into the retail market and set up their own shops. Um, in Ray, the Christie's workshop kept the industry going until 1822 when Christie's wanted to sell up. The industry continued in Ray. We know that there were three or four hat makers there in the 1840s, but by the 1860s, we're down to John Lucas and Robert Ripley's two hat workshops. But that hat industry would then be supplying hats for the local market rather than for the national market. The felt hat industry declined because of mechanisation, but also because of the introduction of the silk hat. Coach travel had been introduced in the 1830s, so you didn't need such a durable, hard-wearing hat, and you could now have a more lightweight hat. The silk hat did not have to be made by someone who had served a seven-year apprenticeship, and it was much cheaper to make. 
There was a turn-up in the trade in the 1850s when the bowler hat, the derby hat, suddenly became very popular and that revived the felt hat trade. Then they became a fashion item rather than the very practical hat that they started out to be for the everyday worker. And if you wanted a fashionable hat, then this felt top hat would be that hat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. Please do listen to some of our other episodes where we talk about everything from medals to microbes.